This is the Voice in the Wilderness podcast channel. Today's topic is going to be the importance of the two devotions, the Sacred Heart of Devotion and the Immaculate Heart of Mary devotion. But first, a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory, and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. The reason I'm doing this particular topic is I had mentioned in previous episodes or not just mentioned, but I've recommended the two devotions, the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotion and the Immaculate Heart of Mary devotion. And our Lord in his Blessed Mother put it upon my heart to give as best as I can, a brief explanation on why the the importance of these two devotions, especially uh, in present time right now as I speak. So before I get into the Sacred Heart devotion of Jesus, I'm going to get into the Immaculate Heart of Mary devotion. Um, But briefly, I want to get into some context. Those who are longtime listeners, those who may or may not have checked out my podcast descriptions on both my channels, may notice that both of my podcasts, are dedicated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus. If they've even bothered to visit my Pinterest and my Tumblr accounts, they will also find or found that the same thing is true there too. My longtime listeners will know that at a certain point during the St. Longinus' Baptism podcast channel, I started dedicating my episodes with a prayer to the Immaculate Heart and the Sacred Heart. There's, like everything, there is a perfectly logical and reasonable explanation for this. I had started my initial podcast when I'd first, I I had started earlier getting serious about my religion, Um, but it took me a couple of months before it occurred to me that the Lord had put a lot onto my heart and his blessed mother and it needed to be said. So being raw and green, I did not fully know about the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotions. I knew the prayers because they were in my prayer book, but I did not know the, I did not know the, um, the devotion. And at the beginning, for the few, for the first maybe first 10 episodes or so, I was unaware um, fully about the devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart. I've said this, but I'm saying. Even when I started doing my original podcast, I was unaware. 
sometime during the original podcast, I read St. Louis de Montfort's True Devotion to Mary, which is basically a book. Um, it just doesn't deal with um, the consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It also deals with Marian theology as understood by traditional Catholicism. And after reading this book, I realized that um, I wanted to I wanted to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so I took up both devotions. And then a little further on, I read, I want to say I read, maybe I heard it on a podcast where we... If you if you take on these devotions, that anything any any type of action that you take, as far as the spiritual life is concerned, should be consecrated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's when I dedicated not just my podcast but my social media in general. Um, and around that time, um, is when I added the ending to the beginning of the prayer where I say, um, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Now, this may seem like irrelevant information to you. But I assure you, there's a purpose behind this. So, the Immaculate Heart of Mary devotion has been around for centuries. However, for modern era, what brought her Immaculate Heart into a more wider um, a wider sphere was when she told the Fatima children that there needed to be a devotion to her Immaculate Heart. I'm not really sure which Pope it was who instituted the first, first Saturday devotion if it was prior to the Fatima apparition or if it came afterward, but that's when the church um, sometime, sometime before or after it got instituted by a Pope and the first Saturday devotion um, became more widely known and I would dare to say accepted as a devotion. And most people do the Marian consecration prayer if they follow the um, devotion once a month. And as I said, for pious and devout Catholics who want to get closer to the Blessed Mother, they do this devotion. From my own experience, the reason I keep recommending it is because I can't recommend it enough. As I've said previously, both devotions have been an unestimable help to me in my spiritual life. And around, around the time that I started getting serious about my religion, I had realized, or came to the realization, I should say, 
that the how much the Blessed Mother, and as I've said in other episodes, her son had been involved in my life, and I was too spiritually blind and ignorant to have seen it. And what led me to this realization was, was I remembered when I first joined the Vatican II sect, my parish, uh, the, the priest who, the Vatican II priest who led me to the uh, rosary was my RICA priest. And he even bought me a rosary because at the time I was out of work and I couldn't afford one. But being an ignorant, just an ignoramus in general, you know, um, I didn't realize the full importance of the rosary. And that was, I want to say that was around in 2005. Um, before my confirmation into the Vatican II sect, I pretty much did my rosary every day. And then after I was confirmed, I uh, fell out of doing my rosary. Due to a series of circumstances, I moved to the large Midwestern city that I've just moved from recently. And I was at the VA hospital for those of you outside of the U.S., VA stands for the Veterans Administration. I'm a former soldier, and I get my medical care through the Veterans Administration hospital system. So when I moved to this city, I went to their local VA. And while I was there one day for an appointment, I had picked up a brochure by an organization, it is Vatican II sect, called America Needs Fatima. And this, this just goes to show the cognitive dissidence within the Vatican II sect as it is. I'll get into that in a, in a minute, but I want to give some, I want to finish my story here real fast. So while I was waiting in the waiting room, I saw, they had uh, like a little magazine, I guess you could call it, about the miracle of Fatima. And in this magazine, they talk about what happened at Fatima. Now, because of circumstances, because just whatever you want to say, because of circumstances, um... I had heard about Fatima, but I did not have any deeper knowledge inside the fact I knew that Fatima occurred. Uh, the Blessed Mother uh, showed up to the, 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 the three shepherd kids and that she, um, you know, miracles occurred there. And that was it. That was the extent of my knowledge. So I'm starting to read through this magazine. And... It came as a bolt out of the blue for me at the time. And then I started to understand the importance of our Blessed Mother's role. Now, was it a complete understanding? No, I don't believe anybody will have a complete understanding unless they are saint until they get to heaven. But I had, I, I had the beginnings of a clue, as they say of the importance of our Blessed Mother. And so I started doing my rosary again. I started being more frequent. And it was while I was doing the rosary during this time period, because we have to remember, I was in the Vatican II sect for 10 years, that somebody online, a neotrad, told me, because I was doing the luminous mysteries out of, out of ignorance, and it's like, well, you know, the luminous mysteries, they're, they're not traditional. 
And they may have given me an explanation. Quite frankly, it's been a long time. I don't remember exactly what they said. What I do remember, however, is I wanted to be a traditional Catholic. And this person was saying that the, the, the luminous mysteries, even though they had been introduced by a person at that time I considered to be a Pope, I thought that they were legitimate, but because, once again, cognitive dissidents, um, I, uh, I, I just did the traditional mysteries. Now, sometime before I left the Vatican II sect in 2016, or 17, I'm not sure which, I think it was 16, um, I uh, I went to my parish priest because one of the things that the um, America Needs Fatima organization does is it holds rosary rallies in different cities. They bring in the Our Lady of Fatima statue, and you get the you get a bunch of people who pray the rosary together. And you pray the rosary for a day in front of the statue. And I recommended doing this to him. And you have to remember the context. Please remember the context. The context is the organization America Needs Fatima recognizes Vatican II as a legitimate council. They recognize the Pope's as legitimate. But when I went to my priest to suggest that they should come to our parish and do this, he, he said, well, I'll get back to you. And then when he got back to me, you know, a couple days later, he's like, well, I've looked on the internet. They seem problematic. Now, at the time, I was puzzled because I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, how can they be problematic? They recognize Vatican II as a legitimate, and got to remember, um, this was one of the things that made me doubt Vatican II as a legitimate council. But I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself, well, what's going on? They, they recognize our popes as legitimate, and they recognize the council as legitimate. How could they not be legitimate? Once again, cognitive dissidents of the Vatican II sect at play here. So to make a uh, long convoluted story short, um, I had a, a very tiny devotion to our Blessed Mother. I'd even been enrolled in the Brown Scapular by the Vatican II sect. But at this time, I did not, um, I did not know about the, the, the consecration to the Immaculate Mother. I had read uh, St. Louis de Montfort's Secret of the Rosary, if I'm getting that, the title of that book correctly, but uh, I don't believe in, in, in that book. He talks about the Marian consecration. So, Fast forward, you know, five or six years, I start getting serious and I, I find out that you can devote yourself to the Blessed Mother. And as I was say, stated earlier, I had, uh, you know, I was, I was doing Marian prayer. And the more that I was doing the Marian prayers that were in my prayer book, the more my love for her was strengthened. And so when I heard that I could consecrate myself to her, I was like, sign me up. Where do I sign up? Anyhow, the reason I went into this long autistic story about the consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary 
It is my conviction. Now, remember, uh, I'm just Joe Layman in the pew. But it is my conviction that without the Marian consecration, that I would not have been as devoted to the sacred heart of Jesus as I was. There's a reason why there are two sayings, even in the Vatican II sect and among set of Acontis. One is no, and when they say no, they're talking about K-N-O-W, no Mary, no Jesus, and through, through Mary to Jesus. So, I give our Blessed Mother all the credit in the world for the fact that she helped me to deepen my love for our Lord. And this is with the disclaimer that I fully realize that I do not love our Blessed Mother and our Lord as they deserve to be loved. That my love on my end is um, imperfect, to put it charitably toward myself. Not that I deserve any. Um, anyhow, that is the sacred heart of Mary devotion and why I think that that is important toward a deeper devotion to our Lord. And at least in my instance, the sacred heart of Jesus' devotion, once again, was invaluable to me in getting to love our, our Lord better. Just to be brief, background on the Sacred Heart devotion. Our Lord appeared to Saint, I want to say he appeared, to Saint um, Gertrude the Great. We're talking about, I want to say, uh, around the 13th or 12th century. And he... Everybody, especially amongst the Vatican II sect, thinks that the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotion got started with St. Uh, Margaret Mary Alcalay back in the 1600s. It had existed centuries before then. And my understanding is the Sacred Heart devotion was given to St. Gertrude de Great herself. And Catholic history being Catholic history... It, it waxed and waned throughout the centuries until our Lord appeared to St. Margaret Mary Alcalay. Yes, I know I'm uh, probably massacring the name. Um, I'm a high American high school graduate who doesn't speak French. Get over it. Anyway, um... But it waxed and waned. And with the very limited amount of research I've done on the devotion, once again, this is my understanding, take it for what it's worth, the Sacred Heart devotion is actually linked to the Eucharist, which um, is our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity. And the purpose, once again, this is just my understanding. The purpose of this devotion is to give true Catholics a better, a more deeper devotion to the, to the, to the Eucharist. Because once, once our um, 
I'm sorry. We being fallen human nature, uh, humans, we tend to get in routines. And part of getting into a routine is those of us, and I'm not including myself in this, but are those of us who are blessed enough to have regular mass or at least weekly mass, um, we fall into a routine and we forget that when we take the Eucharist, we're actually receiving our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity directly. And outside of going for our last judgment, there is nothing that we practice in Catholicism, at least as far as I'm concerned, that is so intimate and so literally awesome than when we receive our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity. When I say awesome, I don't mean in the modernist, oh, hey, awesome, dude. I mean literally in the sense of our getting into heaven and hell and our relationship with our Lord and Savior, if we are taking our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity, if we truly believe that, then we do. We want to take that as seriously, more seriously than we ever take anything in our lives. And the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotion helps... Just like the Eucharist strengthens us spiritually, the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotion strengthens our spiritual understanding of it's an awesome responsibility to do this. Because at the end of the day, and I think part of this is due to faulty training, um, the Eucharist is a gift of grace, no doubt. But it's also an awesome responsibility. And while I'm on this subject, so is being a true Catholic an awesome responsibility. This is why I'm I I I, I get nuts with my co-religionists because they treat it matter-of-factly. It's 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 not a given. It's not a given. It's a gift, but it's a gift that comes with responsibilities. Being a Catholic is not something you're born into. Being, and when I say Catholic, I'm talking true Catholic, is not something that we're, yeah, I'm Catholic. Yeah. It's a responsibility. And it is an awesome responsibility. Because we are the ones, especially in this day and age, who literally have the truth, God's truth, God's revealed truth on heaven. That's not something to be taken lightly. That's not something to be um, taken for granted or presumed upon. This is why I go nuts on my fellow co-religionists. But anyway, to get back to the, um, the Sacred Heart Devotion, Um, the, the, the whole purpose of it is to instill the awesomeness of the responsibility when we take, you know, once again, it is a gift of grace, but it's also a responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility and we should treat it as such. Now, I'm going to, it's going to seem like kind of a, uh, 180 here, trust me, it's this is linked to the, the topic at hand. In the past year, in my own readings and listening to Sedvacantis sermons, not 
not so much in the set of the conscious sermons, but more in the traditional pre-Vatican II Catholic teachings, I have noticed that some of the spiritual writers are actually priests and monks and nuns who have written about our Eucharist refer to it as um, bread, bread and um, food. Now, some of the the more Oh, I don't know how to say it, but some of them do refer to the Eucharist as the bread of life. But I'm going to take a little time and explain why I think that this was a mistake. Hence my previous podcast. When our Lord was speaking to his Jewish audience... He was speaking and sometimes I get tongue-tied trying to express myself. Anybody who studies biblical theology knows that in the Bible, there it's, it's layered. It's layered and it's deep. But Part of one of the layers that the Bible deals with is when Jesus was speaking to his Jewish audience uh, 3,000 years ago, he was speaking to them in terms, he was, he was speaking to the people of that time, that era, that culture, and that society. So... Because the average uh, Jewish person at that time was a very simple person. And they were not polluted with the, I mean, they, they were polluted with their own issues, don't misunderstand. I'm just saying that they're not as, they're, they did not have the pollution that we have today. He's, um... They had a very literal understanding of, of things. So he had to speak to them, or I'm talking about our Lord did, in ways that they would understand, which goes back to what I pounded into State Tartar about speaking to your audience in a way that they understand. He was doing that to his Jewish audience. And so when he gave the famous discourse in the sixth chapter of the gospel according to St. John, and he said, my flesh is, is meat indeed, and my blood is wine indeed, drink indeed, actually, I think is the translation, he was speaking to them literally because that's the only way he could speak to them. And because they were more, what I would consider more simple than we are, they understood implicitly that what he was saying is, is that in order to do the Eucharist, they were literally taking his body and blood. The soul and divinity part, um, I'll leave that for the theologians to, to work out. But they understood implicitly. That's why not just most of his audience went away, but a lot of his disciples. If you read that, that chapter in St. John, chapter 6, um, he lost a lot of his disciples. And that's when he turned to St. Peter and he asked St. Peter, he's like, are you going to leave me too? And St. Peter being St. Peter, he's one of my favorite favorite uh, dis uh, apostles. He said, well, where are we going to go? You have the keys to life. 
which is my attitude too. So now fast forward after his ascension for at least at least prior to his appearance to St. Gertrude the Great. And if the reason I'm bringing this up too is, is I'm reading a book by a Catholic Monsignor, Philip Hughes, who wrote a history of the Catholic Church. If you read the beginnings of the Catholic Church, they really did not have to bother with setting out a hard and fast dogma about transstantiation because it was implicitly understood prior to Martin Luther. Well, at least I would say prior to his appearance to, uh, to, to St. Gertrude the Great, that when you do the Eucharist, it's an awesome responsibility because you're literally taking our souls, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And then I think he gave her the devotion because he's God and he realized, oh, hey, people are starting to get lukewarm about this. They're starting to get lukewarm, indifferent, um, maybe ignorant about it. I need to start this devotion to help people out. Now, I don't pretend to be a theologian. My understanding of the history of transubstantiation, it might have come prior to Trent, the Council of Trent. It might have come prior to that. But what I do know is is that the Council of Trent promulgated that dogma in answer to Luther's heresy, not just Luther, just the, the Protestant heresy, the varying shades of heresy involving the Eucharist. So in response to that, the Council of Trent laid down, by the way, once again, this is my understanding of how things went. They had to lay down a dogma about it so that actual Catholics would not get confused by Protestant teachings concerning the Eucharist. Now, why am I bringing this up? Why did I just go into a half-hearted uh, history lesson here? It's very simple. After the Protestant revolt, um, I have noticed that some priests, prelates, monks, and even religious writers refer to the Eucharist as food. And it obviously, it depends on the person who's writing. The reason I say this is a mistake, once Luther, once Luther revolted and said, nah, it's not really the body, blood, soul, and divinity, it's not really that, and his you know, fellow heretics took their own heresies, I think it was a mistake to, I understand that it's, Probably to the people at that time, they thought that they were following tradition. But the, the, the capital T tradition is that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And that the, the, the Mass is a sacrifice. My understanding is the bread of life is a small t tradition. That was something that was carried on after our Lord ascended into heaven. 
but it's not essential to the dogma that we follow. And I want to explain what I'm talking about. Once Luther started out with the seed of the, of the destruction of the visible Catholic Church, it was a mistake to hang on to that small t tradition and call it bread. Bread and, you know, bread and drink. It would have been better, in my opinion, if we had said it was either um, spiritual nourishment or especially in this day and age, refer to the Eucharist as spiritual fortification. Because anyone who knows about the Eucharist knows that the Eucharist is the, supposed to keep us spiritually strengthened and in union with our blessed Lord. But when we, when, 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 when the Catholics after the Protestant revolt, they actually gave a weapon to the Masons who were trying to undermine our church. Because if they keep, if they kept referring to it as bread, and that's what the Protestants taught, then you're going to get people who are ignorant or slothful or lazy who are going to not take it, you know, they're, they're, they're going to think, oh, it's, it's just bread and wine. You know, there's nothing... There's not nothing implicitly sacred about this and awesome, I might add. Now, am I saying that every Catholic after the Protestant Reformation who ever heard a priest or a bishop refer to it as bread or the drink or drink automatically lost faith in the uh, in the true presence? No, obviously not. It was a seed, though. And that seed, the, the more that the Masons gained power and influence, the more that, that, that seed bloomed into a wretched weed to the point by, that, by the time we got the Vatican II sect, Belief in the real presence, I would say, was seriously undermined. Seriously undermined to the point that when I became a Vatican II sect member in 2005, I remember reading polls in 2005 that only 30% of Catholics, and these were people who considered themselves traditional Catholics, or I'm sorry, they were conservative, well, conservative, traditional, whatever. At that time, I believe the exact, well, not the exact, the estimated percentage of traditional Catholics who believed in the real presence was anywhere between 30 and 40% by 2005. Because, try to follow me here if you can. If we can agree that the Masons did infiltrate the Catholic Church and took it over at Vatican II, which is why we got Vatican II, then let's be honest. The Masons are not stupid. Our enemies are not stupid, people. The Eucharist is one of the most important dogmas and, and transubstantiation by, by default of the Catholic Church. They're not stupid. The people, you know, you what? You don't think the Masons didn't do a, you know, had a theologian or two on hand 
and didn't ask them, well, if we want to kill off the visible Catholic Church, which dogma do we attack the strongest? What, you don't think that that's not possible? You don't think that that didn't happen? And obviously, they, they, you know, they got the understanding. Well, we need to attack the real presence. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that's the only dogma they attacked. They attacked others. But they realized that, that the real presence is is the linchpin of belief. Anyhow, this is why I'm talking about the Sacred Heart devotion. This is, oh, the, the, yeah, I was talking about that, but this is, this is why I think it was a mistake. This is why I think it was a mistake for um, pre-Vatican II Catholic uh, priests and prelates and spiritual writers to, to even keep referring to the Eucharist as bread. And I'm not, I'm not judging you know their, their state of mind or their spiritual state, none of that. I'm saying, in my opinion, it was a mistake because with the Protestant revolt, you'd already planted the seed of doubt in a lot of Catholics' minds about the real presence. And then when the Masons started influencing and taking over society, it just grew to the point where by the Vatican II ha happened that um, they could get thirty. Um, they could get over seventy to sixty percent of Catholics to to doubt that that linchpin of our dogma and our faith. Now, to a certain segment of my audience, this may seem like autistic rantings. It's not. I promise you, it's not. This is important. This comes back to what I've always been saying. Two things which I've always been saying. Number one, our verbiage matters. If you understand, and I'm, I'm talking about the pre-Vatican II Catholics. If you understand that the Protestant heresies that they're teaching, oh, it's just bread and wine then when you're writing to a larger Catholic audience, or for that matter, the public at large, calling it bread is a mistake, in my opinion. Number two, number two, it goes back to my second point of that we have to rectify today the mistakes that prior Catholics had made prior to Vatican II. We have to rectify those mistakes in whatever capacity we are allowed to. Because it's not just enough, it's not just enough to get into stupid autistic theological debates with people who quite frankly don't know and don't care about the issues that's at stake. You're literally talking to the four walls. However, correcting the error of referring to our Lord's body, soul, blood, and divinity as bread in an era where critical thinking skills are non-existent would probably be a better use of our time. So, anyway, um, I highly recommend these two devotions if you intend on getting pious and devout. I hope and pray that this that this um, bears fruit. Um, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I do. Um, I I sincerely hope and pray that you get something out of this. I really do. Um, 
Souls are at stake and your soul should be the most important priority in your life. And the destination of it at least. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a good day. Thank you for your time and patience. Bye-bye.
Christum Dominum Nostrum. 